Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. An amendment to Mexico's constitution wending its way through the legislature would wind back the clock for the country's vast energy sector. We ask why the president is so determined to make energy worse for the planet and for pocketbooks. And back in the 1970s, there was a murder of the Orient Express. We look back on the slow decline of a continent-spanning rail network that was far more than just a mystery novel setting. And it died at the hands of more than just one murderer. First up, though. In India, testing revealed nearly 160,000 new COVID infections on Sunday. That's assuredly just a fraction of the real total. Several states announced restrictions, imposing curfews and closing schools and gyms. The Omicron variant is becoming dominant in India's largest cities, places scarred by memories of the Delta variant. At least six hospitals in the Indian capital, Delhi, have completely run out of oxygen. Other hospitals say they have just hours left of supplies. They have burned over 800 bodies here in the last three weeks, in what used to be a car park. Estimates drawn up by The Economist suggest that about 5 million people have died from COVID in India, more than in any other country. Prime Minister Narendra Modi, though, highlighted India's successes on Friday. Health workers had administered 1.5 billion vaccine doses and had begun vaccinating teenagers. It's one source of hope for Indians that this wave might be different. The pattern in India will likely be similar to other countries that are experiencing Omicron, which is to say that the, the numbers are going to rip up very, very, very fast. So in absolute numbers, they're, they're expecting you know, a colossal number of people to get COVID in India. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief and is based in Delhi. I mean, in the, the past week alone, the number of people who've been officially discovered to have COVID, you know, taken tests is six times more than the, the previous week. So there's, there's no question that we're, we're at the, you know, the sort of beginning stages of a really big wave. And, and how do you think that that will compare with the Delta wave that, that hit India so badly? Well, it's, it's going to be possibly more. I mean, we think that in the peak of the, the Delta wave, the daily number of recorded cases peaked at around 400,000 a day. Now we already have 180,000 a day in the Omicron wave, and it's still rising very fast. So it's only a matter of time until India reaches 400,000 a day. But that too will be almost surely a massive undercounting. And we've had undercounting problems from, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic. How so? In, in that the government numbers don't match the real numbers? 
Absolutely not. There's a huge discrepancy. And it, it's taken a while to catch up. There have been dozens of different studies trying to, you know, calculate what is the difference between the real and the, the official numbers. And uh, it's at least six times. I mean, the Economist's own excess death tracker believes as many as 5 million people died in India, not the 480,000 that are, have officially died. So that, that's a multiple of 10. The trouble, trouble is, even in the best of times, the accounting for deaths in India is very spotty. But then there have also been, you know, rules that mean that COVID as a cause of death has been undercounted, like hospitals being told only to count as COVID deaths people that actually have a COVID positive test. You know, and obviously many people die in the hospital from COVID without having ever been tested. And there are also many, many people have died all over India without ever reaching hospitals, particularly in, in rural parts of India. Well, regardless of the, the absolute numbers, obviously the, the slope of the curve is, is, is on the way up. What about the, the vaccination effort? How, how immunologically prepared is India for this wave? Well, India is kind of falls in the middle. It's not, not the best performing in the world and, and, and not the worst. So far, right now, about 45% of all Indians have been double jabbed. And considering the scale of India's population, that's a pretty good effort. I mean, you know, this, that means more than one and a half billion you know, vaccines have been uh, distributed. But in some ways, more important than that, and actually something that's quite positive, is that so many Indians have gained some form of antibody from previous infection with, with COVID. I mean, studies have shown that in Delhi, for example, a couple of months ago, there was a survey of people. They found that at least 97% of people in Delhi had antibodies from largely from previous infection because the numbers were very high even in children uh, and children have not been vaccinated in India. So if 80% of children seem to have antibodies, that suggests a really very, very widespread of people who've already been in infected with COVID and therefore have some level of immunity. And the calculation in India is as it is elsewhere. In the face of Omicron, there will be uh, huge numbers of perhaps even a smaller fraction of people is still a large number in, in hospitals. And, and, and we've spoken extensively about the, the risks to India's healthcare system. How is that doing now a couple of years into the pandemic? Well, it's certainly better prepared than it was for, for the last rounds of COVID. One of the, the most shocking things last spring was the shortage of oxygen across the country. This year, a lot of that shortfall has been seen to and, you know, lots of hospitals have installed oxygen making equipment. The whole distribution network for oxygen is much better. Also, I mean, doctors have become better at dealing with COVID. They know what to do. So the, the medical system is in, in better shape to deal with large numbers. But of course, the problem with Omicron is that it, it spreads so quickly that medical staff themselves get infected. And in normal times, India already has too few doctors and too many of them are concentrated in big cities. Uh, this time around, because of delays in the vaccination program, uh, the government particularly delayed any kind of program for giving booster shots. And this, of course, for frontline workers, this is a really important thing. So uh, doctors in India largely have not received booster shots or, or have just begun to receive them now. So there are problems with growing staff shortage, although as elsewhere in the world, the numbers of people ending up in hospital from Omicron are much, much fewer than the, the numbers that we saw during the, the Delta wave. It's interesting that you say that even frontline workers haven't got their booster jabs. India is, is a place where so many of the world's vaccines are produced. How can there be a shortage even among its doctors? The government medical establishment has been rather slow to take action. Although India is the world's largest vaccine maker, the Indian government it took a long time to actually place orders to its own you know, private companies to make the vaccine. So that was a problem in the initial rollout of vaccines, which sort of set back the whole project that stopped being a problem a few months ago, but the government was again very hesitant to give boosters 
when a lot of people hadn't yet received their first dose. It's only very recently the government seems to be, have been confident enough to, to start giving out boosters. But it is a little bit late for uh, people who are frontline workers now. So on a lot of counts, it seems that the, the Indian government can, can be blamed for how things have gone so far. I mean, do the people of India believe in the government or, or are they simply choosing to get on without believing in the government? I think they have very mixed feelings because uh, in some ways, politicians have, have acted very irresponsibly in India. Just in the last few weeks, for example, election campaigns have been going on with uh, you know huge crowds of people, political leaders not bothering to wear masks or set an example, at least, of wearing masks in front of lots of people. But on the other hand, we have just lately had India's election commission, for example, intervene to say, please, no more rallies for the next week or so. There are a couple of really big st- state elections coming up. There are other things, you know, India's Supreme Court has kind of managed to expedite the induction of tens of thousands of medical interns who've just finished medical school into uh, hospitals where they're really, really badly needed. So, uh, you know, the government has has a spotty record, but I think a lot of hope is being placed now on Omicrons being less damaging than uh, last year's really horrific wave. So I think people are very hopeful, you know, worried but hopeful right now. Thanks very much for your time, Max. Jason, thank you again. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Supporters of Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador were in good spirits last month. Hundreds of thousands had gathered to mark the halfway point in the president's term. As the second half begins, he's trying to see through one of his central ambitions, major reforms to the energy sector. But he's doing it with one eye on the past, aiming to return big state-owned oil and power companies to their former glories. So this month, the lower house will be debating a proposed constitutional amendment on energy, which would reverse the previous liberalizing reforms of the market, both for electricity, but also it has an impact on the oil market too. Sarah Burke is The Economist's bureau chief from Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean. It would make electricity dirtier and more expensive. It would damage investor confidence, both in the energy sector and beyond. So it could have a really big impact on Mexico. So before we go into what would change, what are things like now in the energy market? So looking at the electricity market, which is the main focus of this bill, since 2013 and 14, when reforms were pushed through by Mr. Obrador's predecessor, both the state electricity company, which is known as CEFE, and private firms generate power. 
And there's an independent agency that manages the grid and prioritizes the cheapest sources. That tends to favor non-CEFE electricity. And it also often is renewable as well, so greener and cleaner, because lots of uh, CEFE's plants are older or run on natural gas, which costs more money as well. And cheaper and reliable electricity led to industrial growth in Mexico. So it's good for Mexico. And the other thing that has happened since then is there's an independent regulator who sort of oversees the market, checks that there's fair play, gives investor confidence in in how things are working. And on to the sort of counter reforms that Mr. Lopez Obrador is suggesting, what would that do to the market? So under that, private firms could still generate some power, but they would be confined to a certain amount, 46% of the generation market. And CEFE would set the terms. The grid would change in terms of the order. CEFE would start running it as opposed to an independent agency, and they would prioritize their electricity. So it's no longer done on, on price anymore. And so that could lead to several things. I mean, first of all, electricity is likely to get more expensive and that's either going to have to be passed on to Mexicans, which the government says it won't be, or the state is going to have to absorb the cost with a big hit to the public purse. This also makes it less likely for investment in renewables. There's less likely that you're going to want to invest in a market that is not really a market anymore. It's going to damage investor confidence, not just in the energy sector, but beyond because of the way these changes are being proposed. It could potentially also breach trade deals such as USMCA, which is the trade deal with the US and Canada. And then also it obviously makes the electricity more expensive, which is not good for business and dirtier, which is also not good for business. Many companies now have environmental goals, such as General Motors, which has already said that if there is not laws to encourage clean energy, it's not going to invest further in the country. And you said the electricity market was the the biggest part of these reforms. What's the rest? Well, there's obviously this focus on nationalization and state control in the oil sector as well. So this isn't part of the bill, apart from the fact that the regulator for the oil sector, the independent regulator, is also proposed to be sort of absorbed or abolished by this bill. But there's also this bolstering of Pemex, the state oil company going on. And this is the world's most indebted energy firm. It has $115 billion outstanding in debt. And the government props it up with cash handouts. And they're so large that they're equivalent to 1% to 2% of GDP. And here too, the government has been trying to squeeze out private participation. So some permits have been cancelled or held up by the regulator. And Pemex really needs private investors. You know, it needs to partner with them to get the cash and expertise to exploit the reserves that Mexico has left, which are often in deep water. And recently, Pemex just said it wants to not export any crude oil and become self-sufficient. So there's really a focus on refining going on. I mean, another thing the president has done is building a new refinery. This is not something other people are doing, and and refining is loss-making for Pemex. So these reforms look to undo a lot of of good work and, and damage prospects pretty broadly. How likely are they to succeed? So there's a lot of opposition to the bill, obviously, as you can imagine, from companies in Mexico and beyond, from analysts and a lot of lawmakers as well. And this is a constitutional amendment, so it needs two thirds of both houses to vote for it. And at the moment, the president doesn't appear to have the votes. But it's worth noting that Congress has passed many of these things in normal laws over the past year or so. And so there's obviously support for it. So it might be that it gets watered down, but passes. And even if it doesn't pass, none of the laws pass, you know, there'll probably be an attempt to do it another way. I mean, this has been done so far with, for example, stuffing the regulators full of cronies who are holding up permits for anyone but Cefe and Pemex. So you can do 
quite a lot of damage even without this bill being passed. So it sounds as if that there there is a, a push already for these kinds of reforms, even though on the face of it, they, they look very self-defeating. Why Why is that? Why does he keep pushing for this kind of change? Yeah, the president is very determined to do this. I mean, he is a left-leaning populist and sees the state as the mainstay of the economy and energy is the leading industry. You know, he's long had an obsession with Pemex and that might come, people say, from his youth when he saw the wealth that it brought to his home state of Tabasco in the South. Some people also think it's about just having control. But there's definitely a real focus on energy that he has and he's not going to let go of it. But, you know, this is just shooting yourself in the foot, even by his stated aims of reinforcing and strengthening Cefe and Pemex. And in fact, they're going to make things worse for Mexico and for Mexicans. You know, Mexico is currently emerging from the biggest economic contraction since the Great Depression. And it has a huge opportunity to attract American businesses in particular who are looking to shorten their supply chains and divest from China. But this is just going to scare them off. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. The Orient Express was once the height of luxury in a golden era of rail travel. Passengers could depart from London, go across Europe to Istanbul, then travel through the Middle East to arrive in Western Asia. It was the setting for one of Agatha Christie's most famous novels, Murder on the Orient Express. But in the 1970s, that service suffered the same fate as the rest of the rail network in the region. In its heyday, back in the 1930s, you could travel all the way from the English Channel to Cairo and then on to Sudan with just a few changes of trains. Nick Pelham is our Middle East correspondent. After the Second World War, the Middle East was carved up into lots of little states, smaller states, and the railway network was carved up along with it. There was a murder on the Orient Express, but there was also the murder of the Orient Express. And to find out who did it, you really feel like Hercule Poirot, the detective, aboard the train. Let me have a map of this coach. Of course. Every passport. Anything. Interviews arranged with all of our passengers. Evidence, order and method. Until one culprit emerges, I do not approve of murder, my friend. In many ways, it's a crime what happened to this fast infrastructure. And while there's just one victim, there are a large array of culprits. Okay, well then let's let's carry this out like an investigation, shall we? Uh, talk to me about your your first suspect, the first clue. Is it is it the colonel? It actually is a colonel in this instance. The first suspect was a British national and quite a famous Briton at that. Nothing is written. For much of the First World War, uh, Thomas Edward Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia, was a British Army colonel conniving behind an enemy lines to rupture what was a really the spine of Ottoman control in the Middle East, the Hejaz Railway that ran all the way from Damascus down to to Medina. Um, And his mission was to thwart Ottoman troop movement to really break that spine of Ottoman control. Okay, that's relatively compelling evidence that the the colonel had motive at least to dismantle some of this railway. Is, Is it as clean as that? Not exactly. Many of his Bedouin recruits also had a grudge of their own against the Hejaz line. They saw it as breaking their lucrative monopoly on the transport of pilgrims and and grain. They were nervous about the influx of foreign technology and foreign ideas that was coming into much of the Arabian Peninsula. And so under the puritanical al-Saud dynasty, the the Bedouin under uh, the al-Sauds continued their attacks, ripping up the line from their new border down to Medina. So it wasn't 
Colonel Lawrence, who, who was responsible for the loss of the railway there. That was really a self-inflicted act of destruction. So the evidence points to a collective motive then of people just stopping other people moving around via these networks. Is, is that the only, only motive to look for in this case? No, there are other groups who are trying to carve out their own national state, their homeland from uh, what remained of these uh, Ottoman lands. You had the Jewish national movement, uh, the Zionists, and they could also be found at the, the scene of the crime between the Mediterranean and the River Jordan. They were carving out a Jewish state um, from the old multi-ethnic Middle East. And the more militant amongst them considered Britain's railway lines sort of to be something of an iron spider's web ensnaring their land. And they killed scores of soldiers and civilians in dozens of attacks to destroy the network. And so it was really a, an, an act to, to disconnect their land of Israel, mandatory Palestine, from the rest of the Middle East. So we have a lot of suspects, a lot of motive and opportunity here, but it, it, this, this doesn't feel solved. The, the Agatha Christie story always ends when the crime is solved. Yes, but of course, these are just a handful of suspects. There are many more. There are other regional conflicts and civil wars that finished the victim off. Now, every government in the Middle East really seems to have a hand in the destruction of a network that once united it and now typifies its fragmentation and division. But if I if I ask you to keep your detective hat on here, is this a one-way journey? Will there be a, a rebuilding, perhaps, of these networks worthy of the, the Orient Express name? Yes, perhaps what's different from uh, the murder on the Orient Express is that, you know, in the Middle East, the story never really ends. There is a fresh attempt to try and to reach out and reconnect those old fragmented lines, particularly when you've got countries looking towards a post-oil age there is a sense in which they have to look backwards to the future, back to an age of movement, and so that this fragmented region might revive its old silk trade routes. And it would be the ultimate plot twist if the victim, the railway network, could show signs of life after all. Nicholas, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. It's always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.